Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 68 called The Rise of the Ostrogoths. It's been a long time, about six weeks since the last episode due to holidays, finishing my third Roman book and some building work on my house. But I'm now delighted to continue where we left off with the fall of the Western Empire in 476 and move on to the next big event, which is the reconquest of much of the West by the Emperor Justinian and his capable general Belisarius, about 60 years later, starting in 533. It's my very favourite bit of Roman history, but before that, we have the small matter of what happened in between. And this is no easy job, because it's one of the most obscure bits of late Roman history, or Byzantine history as many people call it, since we're dealing entirely with the Eastern Roman Empire now. And the problem is that we have pretty poor source material for it. We're reliant on two main writers, Procopius, widely considered the last of the great Roman chroniclers, whose history of the reign of Justinian is one of the most important historical documents ever written, and certainly the most important in late Roman history, at least since that written by Ammianus Marcellinus, who, as you'll recall, did a fabulous job of recording so much of the 4th century for us. But Procopius is famous for writing about Justinian, and in particular the campaigns of his general Belisarius, where he was personally present. Thankfully, he also provided us with quite a lot of information about the half-century before Justinian, but his narrative of these years is nowhere near as detailed as his later descriptions of Belisarius' campaigns, and often raises more questions than answers. Our next most important source is the Gothic historian Jordanes, who is our expert on the Goths, with his famous work called The Gothic History, or Getica in Latin, which is the language he wrote it in. It's worth noting that while Jordanes was of Gothic origins and identified himself with the Goths, he was of a firmly Roman disposition and education. We don't know what his day job was, but he may well have been a monk or even a bishop. He almost certainly lived in Constantinople in the Emperor Justinian's reign, and his history of the Goths was completed in 551, mainly to praise Justinian's victories, reconquering North Africa and Italy, but also to celebrate what he regarded as the union of two powerful races, the Goths and Romans, which he saw as the way towards peace and prosperity. But most historians are deeply sceptical about what he wrote, and this is because he copied most of his history from the now lost writings of a man called Cassiodorus, who lived in Rome when the Ostrogoths took control of it, and wrote a history of the Goths for Theodoric the Great in the 520s, which seems to have been biased in his favour. We're also very reliant on the writings of some minor chroniclers like John of Antioch, John Malalus and Malchus of Philadelphia to fill in much of the detail Jordanes doesn't provide. And these have often been taken from the lost works of Priscus of Parnium, who you'll remember left us with that extraordinary account of his visit to see Attila in 449 and who also wrote a full history of the 5th century which has been mostly lost. So that sums up the confusing historiography of this period, which probably makes you grateful you're not a Roman or Byzantine historian. For me, it's not that simple either, because the secondary sources also differ as to how they interpret the primary ones. I'm basing my analysis mainly on the views taken by the historians J.B. Berry 
and more recently Peter Heather. And I'm also throwing in my own views since I think there's quite a lot of scope for reinterpretation of what was going on in this very confusing period. Now, I'd like to provide a clear narrative about what happened during these years. And to give it coherence, I suggest there were two big events which we need to keep in mind as dominating everything else. The first was the defeat of the great eastern expedition sent to recover Carthage from the Vandals in 468. We've got an excellent description of this from Procopius, which we heard about in episode 64, when, as you'll recall, the Vandal King Geyseric sailed fire ships into the Roman fleet, causing its destruction and the catastrophic loss of the vast army sailing in it. But there's a strange silence in our sources after that, and we have very little information about the consequences of this defeat. And I'll explain at the end of this episode why I think it dominated the next half century until Justinian's reign in a way that hasn't been fully recognised by most historians. The second big event was the emergence of a major new power in the ancient world, and this was the Ostrogoths, who are, of course, our particular focus in this episode. And if you've listened to the previous episodes in this podcast, you'll be very familiar with the fact we have two types of Goths, Visigoths and Ostrogoths. Visi meaning Western Goths, Ostro meaning Eastern Goths. As you know, the Visigoths dominated the history of the Western Empire by sacking Rome in 410 and then settling in Gaul and Hispania. And you'll also know Visigoth and Ostrogoth are just made up names which didn't exist at the time. A bit like Byzantine has become the term to describe the Eastern Romans who always call themselves Romans and wouldn't have recognised what Byzantine meant. Now, as I mentioned, the subject of this episode is the rise of the Ostrogoths, since between the fall of the Western Empire and Justinian's wars of reconquest, an Ostrogothic superstate was created by Theodoric the Amal, or Theodoric the Great, as he came to be called, who built an empire extending from Italy to the Atlantic, even including for a time the Visigothic kingdom in Gaul and Hispania. He became a semi-Roman ruler and commissioned marvellous mosaics portraying his Aryan faith in churches which you can still see in modern Ravenna. Indeed, one of the most striking ancient monuments in Ravenna is his perfectly preserved mausoleum, which is made of beautifully carved white Istrian stone and has a dome fashioned from a single piece of stone, 10 metres in diameter and weighing a colossal 230 tonnes. Quite how it was raised and put in place remains a mystery, which serves as testimony to how powerful and wealthy the Ostrogothic kingdom became. So let's start at the beginning of the history of the Ostrogoths. Although we have almost no information about them, in the 450s there were probably several large Gothic groups in Eastern Europe. We know from Jordanes that a group led by King Valamer first participated in Attila's army and played an important part in the Battle of the Catalonian Plains. Then, after Attila died, Jordanes says these Ostrogoths rebelled against Attila's sons. As mentioned in episode 59, Jordanes recorded a great battle fought at the river Nedau in 454 when he said the Ostrogoths and other German tribes defeated the Huns. 
But most historians are doubtful this battle even happened, and most read it as shorthand for several rebellions and conflicts spread over the 450s, which saw Attila's empire fragment into many tribal groupings, including Goths, Suevi, Skiri, Sarmatians, Gepids and Rugi. Jordanes makes out that Valamer's Ostrogoths were the main Gothic group, but other sources suggest there was another larger group, which were the Thracian Goths, who settled within the Eastern Empire at some unknown point, probably soon after Attila's death as part of the diaspora of German tribes following the breakup of the Hunnic Empire. These Thracian Goths were far more important to the Eastern Romans than Jordanes' Ostrogoths, since By 473, we learn from the chronicler Malchus of Philadelphia that the Eastern Empire was paying them an astonishing £2,000 of gold annually, nearly as much as was paid to Attila. We also know that their leader, Theodoric Strabo, Strabo meaning cross-eyed or the squinter, as he was called, was connected by marriage to Aspar, the commander-in-chief of the entire Eastern Army since the 420s. Strabo's sister was Aspar's wife. It seems they might have even supplied soldiers for the regular army, since there's specific mention of some of the palace guard being recruited from them. Meanwhile, Jordanus's so-called Ostrogoths were very much the poor relations. We'll call them henceforth the Pannonian Goths to distinguish them from the Thracian Goths, since Attila had settled them in Roman Pannonia, which had been ceded by Aetius as a way of paying for his Hunnic mercenaries. In the 450s, Jordanes records them defeating rival German tribes, in particular at a great battle beside the river Bolia, where he claims they routed a grand coalition of Suevi, Skiri, Gepids and Rugi, in other words, most of the Germanic nations that had previously been in Attila's army. Now, some historians think Jordanes was exaggerating their achievements, copying Cassiodorus's biased account, and that they were actually defeated and driven south by these same German tribes who occupied Pannonia at this time. Whatever the truth, the Pannonian Goths certainly moved south into Roman territory, and they were sufficiently disruptive for the eastern emperor Leo to buy them off in 461 with a payment of £300 of gold, which actually seems quite cheap since it was only a seventh of the £2,000 of gold paid to the Thracian Goths. They also had to dispatch Valamer's son, the seven-year-old Theodoric, the future Theodoric the Great, as a hostage to Constantinople, where he spent 10 years familiarising himself with Roman life and culture, an influence that would have a profound effect on him. But it was the Thracian Goths who were still far more influential than their Pannonian cousins, not least because of Aspar's marriage connection with them. Aspar is a fascinating character of Alanic Gothic descent. He's often described as the Stilicho of the East, since there's no doubt he wielded enormous power as the head of the army. In 424, he led the expeditionary force to place Valentinian III on the Western throne, and in the 430s, he fought the Vandals in North Africa. By 450, when Theodosius II died, he was the power behind the throne, and since there were no remaining Theodosian male heirs to inherit the throne, he backed one of his own military commanders, Marcion 
to be emperor. Marcion turned out to be more independently minded than Aspar had bargained for, but there was no serious falling out between the two of them. In 457, Marcion died of gangrene, aged 65, possibly because he'd unwisely made the customary religious procession barefoot from the Great Palace to the military barracks at Hebdomon beyond the city walls, when he was already suffering from gout. One source says that the Senate offered the throne to Aspar, who refused, apparently saying cryptically, quote, I fear I would start an imperial tradition, end quote. Historians have assumed he meant he would break an imperial tradition since he was too Germanic and too Aryan, in the religious sense that is, to be acceptable as emperor. But there's no doubt he wanted to maintain his position as the power behind the throne and he backed another army officer, Leo, to become emperor. This proved a fatal mistake, literally, for Leo was even more independently minded than his predecessor Marcion and started to build an anti-Gothic faction in Constantinople by recruiting Isaurians into the army, including one called Zeno for short, or Tarasicodisa Rusambladotes to use his full Isaurian name. The Azorians were a hardy people living in the Taurus Mountains in Anatolia, widely regarded as semi-barbarian. But they provided a new and useful source of manpower for the army. Leo used them to counter both the Gothic forces in the army and Aspar's influence. Because of this, in the 460s, Leo and Aspar openly fell out, and Leo made a point of marrying his daughter Ariadne, to Zeno. This was the last straw for Aspar because it dashed his hopes for his own son, Ardaburius, to become emperor. Zeno and Ariadne quickly had a son of their own, who they diplomatically called Leo after his grandfather, who now became the heir to the throne, since Leo Sr. had no male children. Matters came to a head when Aspar tried unsuccessfully to murder Zeno, who fled Constantinople. Aspar forced Leo to give his younger son, Patricius, the title of Caesar, and to marry Leo's younger daughter, Leontia. It was a clear bid to oust Zeno's son. But Aspar was trying too hard. There were riots in the Hippodrome, protesting that Patricius should convert from Arianism to Catholicism before he married Leontia. Leo refused to become Aspar's puppet, and in 471 he managed to have him killed, although our sources don't say precisely how this was done. This proved to be a major turning point for the Eastern Empire for two reasons. First, it ended the dominant influence of the Thracian Goths, and second, it was the starting point for a major four-way power struggle between the Roman establishment in Constantinople, the Isaurians, and the two main sets of Goths, the Pannonians and the Thracians. What happened was that Strabo, the leader of the Thracian Goths and Aspar's brother-in-law, revolted against Leo because of Aspar's death. This gave the Pannonian Goths their opportunity because Leo asked them to fight the Thracian Goths. The Pannonians were now led by Theudemir, 
Valamir's brother after his death. As mentioned, the Pannonians have been champing at the bit for quite a while now to get a larger slice of the Roman pie, ever since they found out Leo was paying £2,000 of gold to the Thracians and only 300 to them. In January 474, the emperor Leo died and was succeeded by his seven-year-old grandson and Zeno's son, Leo II. Zeno proclaimed himself co-emperor with his son on account of his young age until his son unexpectedly died in November 474 when he assumed the sole position of emperor. Zeno had won ultimate power for himself, but what followed was 15 years of chaos in the Balkans for two reasons. First, there was an effective civil war in Constantinople between Zeno and his Isaurians, and Leo I's powerful wife, Verena, who in the tradition of powerful women like Galla Placidia and Ilia Pulcheria, wanted to play an active part in politics, but since she was denied executive authority as a woman, she exercised it through her brother Basiliscus. The man, who you will no doubt remember, led the great expedition against Carthage in 468 to disaster and who she wanted to be emperor instead of Zeno. Her power base was strong in Constantinople, if not anywhere else, because she had the support of the mob, who were mainly Greek, and who resented Zeno and his Isaurians just as much as they did the Goths. Second, the two Gothic factions, the Pannonians and Thracians, were vying for power. In 474, the year Zeno came to the throne, there was also an important leadership change when Theodoric the Amal, the future Theodoric the Great, seized power as leader of the Pannonians. Having spent 10 years in Constantinople as a hostage, he was well versed in how the Roman government worked and wanted to take full advantage of this to bring the Thracian Goths under his control and create a Gothic supergroup, maybe with a view to using this to take Constantinople itself. He was successful with the former as we will discover, but not the latter. And the next 15 years witnessed an extraordinarily chaotic period, as Zeno struggled to maintain his authority while the two sets of Goths first fought each other, then fought the Romans, and finally united under the leadership of Theodoric the Great, and in 487 agreed to leave Roman territory for good and to migrate west to Italy. Meanwhile, Roman politics became even more confused than usual, as Zeno was overthrown by, would you believe it, Basiliscus, the man, as you know, who led the fateful expedition to Carthage. But Zeno hit back and used his Isaurians to return to power before turning on them and crushing them as well. Now, I'll tell you the full details of this backstabbing story in the next episode, and I promise you it will make Game of Thrones look as tame as a vicar's tea party in comparison. But I want to reserve it for the next episode because I want to finish with a point which I think is terribly important but often overlooked in almost every history of this period. Have you noticed that I've missed something in the narrative? Let's think about it. We've covered the period from Attila's death in 453 through to 474 when Zeno succeeded Leo. But hang on, what happened in 468? You've got it. I haven't mentioned the great expedition to recover North Africa, launched by the Emperor Leo, which ended in catastrophe, as you know, at the Battle of Cape Bon. 
Now, if you pick up a lot of history books, you'll find the same thing. Nobody talks about the expedition of 468 in the context of the crazy politics of the 470s. But hang on, that doesn't make sense. Because if you go back to episode 64, you'll find that Leo's expedition to recover Carthage was vast. According to Procopius, there were 1,100 ships and 100,000 soldiers. No chronicler ever mentions how many ships were destroyed and how many soldiers killed, but the cost of the expedition is said to have been £130,000 of gold, which would be 65 times the annual tribute paid to the Thracian Goths. So that has to be a big deal, right? Well, I think so. Indeed, I think it's the key to unlocking what was really going on when the Goths dominated Roman politics in the 470s. Do you remember in the last episode, 67, we talked about the Eastern Roman army being rebuilt in the 440s to fight Attila? Do you remember I mentioned that the historians Anthony Caldellis and Marion Cruz have published a superb book just this year proposing that it was during that time the number of field armies increased from two or three to five? Now, I can't prove it, but I suggest it's very likely some of these field armies were sent to Africa. When they were nearly obliterated, the Eastern Army was obviously much weaker. And this explains why it was held to ransom by the Goths and Isaurians in the 470s and 480s. Historians normally explain the period of chaos as being the result of things like political dislocation in Constantinople, especially because Zeno was resented as being an Isaurian. And of course, there were two sets of Goths who were vying for power and ready to take advantage of this. But I suggest the real reason lay with the disaster at Cape Bon. After Cape Bon, the eastern treasury was empty and the field armies so badly mauled that they couldn't defeat the Gothic tribes that occupied the Balkans after the breakup of Attila's empire. It would take 20 years for stability to return to the Balkans and another 40 years or so before the eastern empire would again attempt to recover North Africa. By that time, it had rebuilt its treasury and its army. So in conclusion, the disaster at Cape Bon is the key to explaining why the Ostrogoths were able to defy the Romans and rise to power. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And if you like this podcast, I'm not looking for contributions to Patreon or anything like that, but I would be delighted for a review in whatever podcast app you use. And also, I'd be delighted if you wanted to visit my website, nickholmesauthor.com, link in the podcast notes, where you can get a free ebook and look at maps, blogs on the Roman Empire, and my books. And in the next episode, we'll continue with the story of Zeno and his battle with the Ostrogoths, which will be in two weeks on the 30th of September since sorry but I'm still busy with the publication of my third book later this year after that I hope to get back to weekly podcasts thanks for listening and see you next time <laughs>